This is an RNZ podcast. A social media crackdown in the wake of the Christchurch mosque attack stopped a US gunman from live streaming the entire event. The 18-year-old shooter broadcast his rampage in Buffalo for at least two minutes before it was cut off. That was the news last Monday morning on talk station Today FM, following up on the white supremacist who shot and killed 10 people, most of them black, in Buffalo, New York State and the US a day earlier. And there were disturbing echoes there of the murder of 51 New Zealanders in Christchurch in March 2019, including a so-called manifesto posted online by the killer, citing that attack as a personal inspiration. Indeed, that document reportedly included entire passages from the paranoid one that was released by Brenton Tarrant three years ago, regurgitating tenets of the thoroughly racist and conspiracy-laden Great Replacement Theory. Our acting chief censor, Rupert Ablett-Hampson, acted swiftly to declare that document objectionable, making it illegal to possess or share in New Zealand, as his predecessor had done here back in 2019. But in another ugly echo of March 15 that year, the killer in Buffalo also streamed his attack online, as CNN's media correspondent Brian Stelter told his viewers that same day. A live stream that was posted on Twitch, the popular gaming streaming service. Now, Twitch says the video was removed within minutes, but some of the video clips and images are still circulating online. There are now calls for accountability uh, for social media firms, but the rot goes a lot deeper. You can't just blame one single social networking site and say that's the problem. The problem is a lot more complex. Now, Twitch, which is owned by Amazon, was applauded for promptly disabling the grisly broadcast so quickly, as Today FM reported here last Monday, including this. Internet New Zealand CEO Andrew Cushion says it could have been worse. Uh, we, we see action being taken far faster and far more comprehensively. It shows how far we've come after the Christchurch attacks here and, and New Zealand can take some pride for the leadership role we've taken. And there, Internet New Zealand's leader Andrew Cushion was talking about the Christchurch call, the commitment by government and big tech companies to eradicate online extremism. Now, that was instigated by Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern and signed three years earlier to the day. And last Monday, the Prime Minister's special representative on the Christchurch call, Paul Ash, told RNZ's morning report that the Christchurch call had directly helped to stop the Buffalo atrocity and others from going viral online. If we go back to Christchurch... These measures weren't in place at that time. If we moved forward, say, six or seven months from the attack in Christchurch, when there was an attempt at doing something very similar at a synagogue in Halle, Germany, uh, we saw the crisis response measures implemented for the first time, and it had a significant impact in slowing down the spread of the material. If we come forward to today, we can see that those tools are working at pace much more quickly than they did in, in previous instances. Well, good to know that this kind of abuse of the internet by extremists, racists and terrorists can be foiled. But this week, the press in Christchurch revealed that some people online had been sending survivors of the Christchurch mosque massacre footage of the shooting in Buffalo, using anonymous social media accounts that appeared to have been set up just for that purpose. And social media content that radicalises people in the first place is still, it seems, spreading as fast and as easily as ever. Earlier this month, TVNZ's breakfast show reported this. Thank you, Indira. New research has put a spotlight on just how shockingly bad the tech giants are at acting on anti-Muslim hate speech. 
So you can see here, got the stats for you from the Centre for Countering Digital Hate. It has found that YouTube ignored all of the 23 complaints made to them. The other sites, not a lot better, Maddie. No, Facebook ignored 94% of its 125 complaints and Twitter worse with 97% of its 105. Instagram and TikTok marginally better but still not acting on 86% and 64% of complaints respectfully. And the head of the Washington-based Centre for Countering Digital Hate, Imran Ahmed, told TVNZ Breakfast that major social media companies are still not enforcing their own terms of service for discriminatory content in spite of their commitments in the Christchurch call. In the wake of what happened in Christchurch two years mm. ago, mm. the platforms all made a solemn vow to the families of those people who had died, promising them that they would do their utmost. And what we did was we did test what they've done in those two years. So we wanted to, we reported this using their own platforms reporting tools. So we clicked, this is dangerous and offensive content. We explained why it was dangerous. We reported it to them. And nine out of 10 times when faced with extreme content, including glorification of the killer in, in Christchurch, hmm. nine out of ten times they fail to act. And in the end, governments around the world, including ours, will have to force big tech to be better, Imran Ahmed told TVNZ pretty bluntly. Asking social media companies not to behave in a sort of greedy, selfish, lazy way haven't worked <laughs> because these are greedy, selfish, lazy companies and that's why we need regulation. Now, listening to that on TVNZ's breakfast show was Yasser Shakib from the Islamic Council of New Zealand, who said that the key to all this was the mathematical means by which extremism is amplified online. Because, you know, nobody really talks about the algorithms of these social media companies. Mm. If you're somebody with a really ultra right wing perspective and you're, you know, you are searching these, you know, death to Islam and all these kind of things, then the algorithm is going to keep amplifying more and more things that, you know, that will basically, um, like, support your cause, so to speak, and, like, support your views. And later on TBNZ's breakfast show, the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern identified exactly the same problem. Now the next step for us are things like algorithm transparency, uh, what happens with individuals who are radicalised online, how do we, uh, how do we deter people from going down those those wormholes that radicalise and the role that social media has to play in that. Well, this week, David Shanks, who's just come to the end of five years as New Zealand's chief censor, told a global summit on social media run by the Centre for Countering Digital Hate in Washington about his experience of confronting online extremism here after March the 15th, 2019. We need a new approach. These things are serious, very serious issues indeed, potentially threatening our way of life, our democracy, our very society, our cohesion as a society. And unless, unless we grapple with those issues and make serious moves to address these fundamental architectural issues, we are facing a very serious situation indeed. For we the people, it's essential that we do that. It won't be easy, it will be hard, it will be expensive. But one thing the digital industry has is plenty of money. Thank you. And in an interview with us last week, before the latest atrocity in Buffalo, New York, I asked David Shanks if everyone online is now still at the mercy of those algorithms which the social media giants keep shrouded in secrecy 
for their own interests. The tech companies, particularly large ones, appreciate that they are operating what in some circumstances can be a dangerous business. So the March 15 attack really highlighted that graphically for the entire world. The live streaming of that attack activated the attention of the recommendation algorithms that the the platforms operate automatically to provide um, recommendations of high engagement material. So in the aftermath of that horrendous attack, the platforms were effectively fighting their own machines, fighting their own AIs, doing what they were programmed to do, which is distribute um, material that people were reacting to and engaging with. Uh, The tech platforms are are growing in their awareness that there might be other vulnerabilities and other issues um, with how they operate their business. And I think there is a growing um, acceptance that this needs to be discussed. In fact, I was just reminding myself that Mark Zuckerberg said over two years ago, regulate us. We we need help in this space. And and effectively, from his point of view, I suspect, you know, that that hasn't happened. But notably in dealing with large streaming platforms in relation to the introduction of the changes to the Classification Act that means streaming uh, companies such as uh, Netflix um, and Neon and, and so forth need to self-rate their material according to New Zealand classification norms. And we've introduced a a system to allow them to do that. And, you know, I I suspected there might be some difficulty in engaging with very large international platforms, especially for a new, uh, you know, for a small product zone such as New Zealand, as far as an Amazon, for example, would be concerned. But actually, I've been very positively uh, surprised by how um, engaged big platforms are once they're clear on what the expectation is and how the system is going to work. Is that where the future of this is really, not just in New Zealand, but internationally, that basically cracking that algorithm or forcing that basically they could be you know, interfered with and, and that could be a way of regulating the in- impact of stuff that's clearly harmful? There's a lot of discussion around the algorithms and algorithmic transparency, and I I definitely think um, that is part of what needs to come next. Um, We don't know the detail of how the algorithms work, and and to some extent, the platforms also really don't fully understand how the algorithms work because they're self-learning, and they're really just, um, you know, engaging with um, billions of interactions online and and adapting and evolving um, continuously. So the, the challenge in that space is huge, but I think you can turn it around and go, and how can we get better transparency around that? How can we figure out the functions that may be pushing people down rabbit holes of misinformation or or pushing them to white supremacy type uh, podcasts and material. All, all of that sort of thing, I think, is understandable in terms of outputs and can be played back through in terms of, look, we just expect you to operate a safe platform and here's some, here's some rules and uh, procedures about what the standards for a safe platform is. And if you think about that, it's not too much different from where we got to with news, media, and how we approach you know, powerful te- technologies such as radio uh, back in the day, which is, look, you've got a job to do, and it's really important that you have independence um, 
in, in doing that job, but there are also some standards and some rules of the game that you need to abide by. Yeah, and they, they need to abide by their own terms of service, right, that they expect their customers to sign up to. They need to enforce those. Uh, look, these, these companies have um, terms of use. They require um, users to abide by, but if you actually push on that and test that, by and large, they're not applying those terms of use consistently or, or at all. The internet is primarily owned by a few very huge global conglomerates that are operating it for for profit through profiling and packaging users and selling them to advertisers. So it's a very, very different world that we're in now from um, from that that was being looked forward to in the late 90s. And I think we've got to adjust our approach accordingly. That was David Shanks, New Zealand's chief censor from 2017 until last week. And this week, a keynote speaker at a global summit on online harm at the Washington-based Centre for Countering Digital Hate. Now, another observer of the impact that the Internet's had on our lives in New Zealand over the years is Jordan Carter. He's the chief executive of Internet New Zealand, the non-profit umbrella group which campaigns for an open, effective but safe and secure Internet for New Zealand. He's stepping down from that role shortly after almost a decade in charge. And three years ago this week, he was in Paris alongside our Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, her French counterpart Emmanuel Macron, and the bosses of the big tech and social media companies who all signed the Christchurch call. Now the goal of that, as we heard, was pretty bold, eradicating online extremism. But this week, new research from the Disinformation Project, part of Tapunaha Matatini at the University of Auckland, concluded that just a dozen individuals at the Occupation of Parliament recently created the online content that was most widely consumed out of all of the thousands of online posts and hundreds of hours of live stream footage created by hundreds of people participating. And the director of the project, Kate Hanna, said that this made those activists broadcasters. They tend to act uh, as a collective of a set of uniform voices and messages, but with um, a style that appeals to different parts of an audience. As you can imagine, you know, not everybody listens to the same radio station in the morning, right, to, um, to appeal to everybody. Now, the ease of sharing and the power of the social media algorithm gave those people a much bigger audience than any New Zealand mainstream media outlet could deliver. And after the latest mass shooting that was aired online in the US this week, I asked the outgoing Internet New Zealand chief Jordan Carter if the opaque algorithms of the social media giants mean that the munch-vaunted aims of the Christchurch call haven't actually achieved a whole lot in the end. But sometimes you need boldness to instigate action. And so I think it was fine for the call that came out of what happened in Christchurch um, to be a really clear line saying this kind of content should not be online. Um, and it has helped push things back. You know, the, cri- the crisis protocol aspects of work that was done following up and getting those big players to really put some energy and some resources into responding faster and more effectively when things like this happen has made a difference. So I think it means that there's less rapid propagation and things are taken down more quickly. So this... Has it eliminated it? No, it hasn't eliminated it, but um, it's made it less visible in the mainline platforms, and I think that's a win. Um, but does the fact that something so similar has happened, you know, was able to get on a platform, we still have people with these manifestos, the great replacement theory, all that jazz, the fact that that is still all out there and there doesn't seem to be a great deal we can do, 
you know, to keep to keep it off there. And the Centre for Countering Digital Hate says, look, all these big names in tech are still not taking away Islamophobic posts, the sort of stuff that radicalises people in the first place. Have we just not made enough progress there? It's a big problem. And it relates to this broader um, fact about the mismatch between what the social media networks do, which is sell advertising and persuasion, and the social impact that they have, which has this feature of being able to radicalize people. Um, And whether it's in terms of the right-wing white extremism, or whether it's in terms of Islamic extremism, or uh, any other forms that are out there, um, because the fundamental business model of of attention selling that they're doing lends itself to the kind of emotional processes that happen here. And even if you get the content down quickly, um, it still spreads within these sub-communities and tiny obscure forums that you're never going to be able to get completely on top of, right? That's kind of the nature of the internet, this broad set of distributed um, platforms. So we're getting better at dealing with the big ones, um, but we can't eliminate its circulation in some of the smaller places very easily. And, the, you know, there's a bigger social problem. You know, it isn't just social media or internet forums where the scrape replacement theory is being talked about. Sometimes it's even in mainline politics, you know, something that the, the Republican Party in the United States has begun to talk almost openly about. Well, we've heard from David Shanks, who I guess, like you, has... Uh, just uh, stepping down from a, a several years of a, of a top job where he's had to wrestle with the impacts of online extremism and, you know, the compromises about a free and open internet and freedom of speech and all of that. Um, but he said, look, the social media algorithms, they clearly amplify extremism, radicalise people. And, you know, this is the battleground now. Transparency over how they operate uh, would would help. But, I mean, will the big tech platforms, to them, it's the absolute golden goose, right? It's part of their business model, uh, the, the way mm-hmm. these algorithms work and their control over them. Will we ever see them surrender or be forced to surrender or crack open algorithms to any other outside agency that might be able to, you know, interfere with the way that they work in order to uh, at least attempt to reduce the harm they can cause? If we don't see that, we're not going to solve the bigger problem. Um, and I don't mind if it's voluntary on their part um, or if it's mandated by regulation legislation. But in the end, transparency allows researchers, um, practitioners, government agencies to at least begin to understand what the impact is of these algorithms. And the point is they're designed to harvest attention, right, to generate engagement with the platform. Turns out the way our brains work means that content that angers us is good at drawing our attention and getting us involved. And so I think that's what David was getting at when he said that this, the algorithmic amplification process does tend to promulgate content with that impact uh, that can then have these sort of strings of, of radicalization taking people off in, in problematic directions. So transparency is the very least and most modest, not of the code of the algorithms, but of what their impact is. And then if we can really get a shared understanding of what they're doing to various people and communities, then we can start to have a more mature and informed discussion about what to do about it. But yeah, you know, it is exactly as you say, it's the golden goose. They're going to be highly reluctant to do it. Transparency was one of the agenda items in the Christchurch call um, summit in 2019. And it is the area, as far as I understand it, it's made the least um, progress. And, you know, we've had other industries in the past that have been highly lucrative with 
various trade secrets and so on. You know, think of pharmaceutical drugs, and we end up putting patent laws in place that gave people a limited monopoly of those before things became generic and could be copied by others. Or even in the, even um, in the online world, right? Microsoft antitrust legislation because they were you know they yep. were dominating uh, PC software with uh, Windows and all yep. the software that went with it. They were forced to crack yeah, that the, open. The Internet Explorer, and another example is the chemicals industry, which wasn't really effectively regulated before the 70s, highly profitable, uh, and it was killing people. And so governments came in and said, sorry, uh, we're going to get involved, we're going to impose some standards, we're not going to let you do whatever you like, because the effects on society are too dangerous. And now chemicals, you know, they're still innovative, they make less money than they used to, um, but the world hasn't fallen in. And that's the, the way forward for these social networks as well. Thinking about the news media, which is, I guess, my particular area, I mean, they fell into this problem of platform dependency. You know, Facebook became so huge, they needed to have their content out there. Mark Zuckerberg tweaked the algorithm to say, no, more stuff in your news feed from friends and family, less news because it um, doesn't turn people on as much. Suddenly, mm-hmm. uh, even though it was an incremental fall, I mean, I think Zuckerberg reckoned it was from sort of 5% of content down to 4 would be news media content. Um, you know, the other 94, 95% of stuff, you know, user-generated stuff or stuff from outside news media, just that little fall mm. caused a, a you know... A, a huge spasm within the media financially and attention-wise. This can't have been a secret even 10 years ago that this was going to be a problem that regulators would need to tackle one way or another. I don't think it was a secret. I don't think we, I certainly didn't understand the way it would play out in terms of the the kind of social consequences of it. Um, The big problem for the media sector, in my mind, was that the control of the advertising dollar went away. Right, the you know, classified ads in the newspaper industry just vanished um, pretty quickly. And and as for the share of mind thing, I have much less of a sort of um, firm view about it personally because, you know, people, you know, it's the revealed preferences, right, of of the sector of, of what people are doing on these platforms. If people don't want to see news content, the providers are always going to. Um, shift the the algorithm to produce something else and it also relates back to our previous conversation about extremism right you know fair balanced journalism is probably good for democracy but it turns out that the way our brains are wired it isn't all that good for keeping people repetitively scrolling on their feeds um so the feeds will go somewhere else they'll they'll find that energy and excitement and anger to keep people hooked um, and, you know, the, the interaction of that with the news media is just a, an unfortunate and irrelevant um, side effect as far as the big platforms are going. I wonder, do you fear in the end, to go back to where we started, that sensible restrictions on the internet for the public good uh, are going to be difficult, are going to be caught up in, you know, kind of cultural and political, sometimes even party political battles about free speech? They might be. In, in the global environment, we're in a bit of an info war uh, as we speak, you know, and I think that what's bizarrely what's happened in the Ukraine has helped to highlight that. Um, the Russian state for quite a long time has made use of um, some of the vulnerabilities of this social media environment to intervene in other countries. And they seem to have an agenda um, to say, well, we can't ever win a, a head on confrontation with liberal democracy. But we can use these systems they're built to undermine their social cohesion and their political cohesion. And so that's a kind of risk that I think people are waking up to and are starting to get grips, not with how to solve, but at least to be uh, aware of. 
So I think in particular, you know, that culture war stuff is often like, I've got free speech. I don't want someone to tell me what to say. Um, I don't think we have to. We, the problem isn't when some person um, chooses to express um, random view X that I might or might not disagree with. The problem is when the systems amplify it in a way that then creates social divisions that weren't necessarily there. You've always had people publishing bizarre um, opinions. Um, you know, people have always said wingnut things. The culture war stuff. So none of that is new. What is new is the way that these um, media systems fasten on to the most controversial and polarizing views and then just keep serving them up in a way that draws people apart from each other. So I think if in New Zealand, if we can look at the reforms that we might be contemplating, things like the hate speech law or whatever it is, and go, it's never about stifling anyone's individual commentary or thinking. It's about saying, how do we create you know, systems of law and regulation that we do in every other media environment um, that can tackle the, the systemic propagation of this stuff um, for how we deal with these kind of online user-generated content systems that have kind of grown up um, without the law keeping up. That was Jordan Carter, the outgoing chief executive of Internet NZ, who was in Paris three years ago when the Christchurch call was signed. Now He's stepping down from that role after nearly 10 years, a decade in which the Internet's had a huge effect on our media as well as our public life. And next week here on Media Watch, we can hear more from him about that.